welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This week we're thinking about jobs, machines and COVID-19. At the start of this pandemic, a lot of people decided globalisation was dead. Companies would pull their factories out of China and supply chains would shrink. By and large, companies haven't done that, but COVID-19 does seem to have brought forward the day when an awful lot of the jobs we see around us are done by a machine. In a few minutes, I'll be talking about what the future holds with Harvard Economics Chair and deep thinker about all things labour-related, Richard Freeman. Our chief European economist, Jamie Rush, is also going to explain why the answer to the biggest question in the global economy right now is $3.2 trillion. I'll leave you to work out what the question is. But first, here's US economy reporter Olivia Rockman on the truth about robots and jobs in the year of COVID-19. Adding more robots to factories, retail stores, or mines was historically seen as a job killer by workers and the unions that support them. But this year, automation has allowed sectors of the economy to continue producing with fewer people, or without any at all, minimizing the coronavirus risk for workers. Unions have recognized that automation will continue to accelerate to avoid massive outbreaks like the ones seen in U.S. meatpacking plants earlier this year. But while they're all for protecting workers, their concern is widespread and permanent job loss. In many cases, once a company invests the cash to implement automation, it's unlikely that they'll take their workers back. A highway in Pennsylvania cut 500 toll worker jobs earlier this year after putting an electronic system into place. And it doesn't plan to bring any of the employees back. Marcus Casey, an economist at the University of Illinois at Chicago, spoke with me about how eliminating jobs can exacerbate inequality if those workers aren't taught new skills. High-skilled jobs that require a creative or human touch, so to speak, will remain, um, even in cases where pay is not necessarily much higher. Uh, for example, uh, skilled workers, say professors like myself, may see our pay as relatively flat in the future. However, among people who aren't necessarily as skilled, um, because there'll be fewer jobs, you might see pay actually decrease because of increased competition in those sectors. One solution to the inequality problem is increased investment in reskilling, which can help factory workers transition into jobs in healthcare, for example, where automation is more difficult to implement. That's U.S. President-elect Joe Biden's plan. Ensure that employers give workers impacted by automation advance notice and put them at the front of the line for new jobs, as well as paid skills training. Currently, though, the United States, Chile, and Mexico spend the least among OECD countries on policies intended to improve job readiness and expand employment. That isn't likely to change quickly because health concerns are coming first. And Casey says there will be consequences. We already have a long-term problem with people who are prime age and not working. Our employment to population ratio has been declining for many decades. And uh, suppose in the future we go from a situation where we have a 67 or 68 percent employment to population rate to maybe a 50 percent employment to population rate. Many of those people are young prime age males and our social insurance programs tend to direct money away from that population. 
So I'm delighted now to be able to talk to Richard Freeman, Herbert Asherman Chair of Economics at Harvard, taught me a lot about labour markets quite a long time ago. Richard, uh, thanks for coming on Stephanomics. Um, We're talking this week about the impact that COVID-19 has had on workers in the US and Europe, and also how 2020 fits into the longer term structural changes in the labour market that you've spent uh, a lot of your life thinking about and studying. And one thing that's come up a lot is the, the unequal way that this pandemic has hit societies and households with poorer people much more likely to get sick and more likely to, to lose their jobs. But we also know that fiscal stimulus, certainly in the US, actually increased the disposable income of many lower wage Americans in 2020. And I think you've also had many parts of the world, a kind of outbreak of social solidarity in many places and maybe a new appreciation of the value of people in some of these low paid jobs that we were reminded are so important for keeping the country going. So when you look back at at 2020, do you think it's going to mark a break with some of those long term trends for labour or or more an acceleration? My guess is it will more accelerate things um, because the, the the good outcomes that we had in, in the uh, particularly through our our uh, almost unanimous uh, CARES Act that really provided the 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 people who lost their jobs and the low income people a at least you know financial protection that was a one time thing we may and then next few days pass something else but that'll also be a short-term policy the the longer term thing is that we've created two different kinds of workers those who work at home using computer technologies and those who work interacting with other humans in dangerous settings and and so i i think the real push is going to be to automate more of those jobs and um, to do more work at home phenomenon. Um, and that's, that benefits one group of people, managers, professionals, and that harms another group of people. The, the people we were told X years ago, not, not so long ago, were, the, were gonna be the heart of the new economy. It wasn't gonna be you know, guys working in big factories. It was gonna be all the people who interact with other humans. If this COVID is a one-off and we don't see another one in another five, six years, you know, maybe we'll, we'll just go back to a more normal phenomenon. But there's a, certainly a, a chunk of thinking in the scientific community that uh, this is just the first pandemic that we're gonna see. And there are more coming down the line. We're entering an age of uh, pandemics that this is not the first one that's gonna jump. Um, And the climate change is gonna add more to this. So if if this is a turning point, it's going to be a turning point, changing work, and I think speeding up automation and creating more problems for the lower skill people. 
just to dig into that a bit, because there obviously is quite a lot of debate and it predates COVID about the impact that the next wave of automation and uh, artificial intelligence could have on on inequality and on and on jobs. And uh, there is an argument that says, actually, this next wave is going to be kind of different and that it, the jobs that we see being replaced are kind of accountants, quite high skill workers um, that... Uh, have done well in the previous few decades, the middle middle manager types potentially. Um, and you might argue, I mean, if we don't live permanently in pandemic, you know, those kind of person to person to job jobs, hairdressing, all those things. I mean, they hadn't, they didn't go away in the pandemic, and we're all trying to go back to our hairdressers when we can. So I wonder whether that we're whether you're exaggerating the the impact of of COVID and not seeing potentially the other side of this automation, which does seem to have accelerated. Yeah, I've been sympathetic to, to the view that the more skilled people would be replaceable by really smart AI. Um, but so far, the evidence is that that hasn't happened. And all the AI experts told us accounting is going to just die off. And in fact, the accountants keep increasing. And of course, the accountant profession gets more computerized and, and people learn more skills. Yeah, it's hard to hard for me to now see that those are the people who are going to be uh, threatened, as opposed to the clerks in the stores. Um, and, and if we want to go to a store, I suppose I'd rather see a robot. It's safer for, for me as a consumer to deal with a robot that can't carry the disease. There is an odd uh, challenge that, on the one hand, uh, we talk a lot about the risk of automation and the likelihood that automation is going to take jobs, at least in a chunk of the workforce. Um, and yet we have this problem, ongoing problem of very low labour productivity relative to the past. So what what's the answer to that? Because on the face of it, it does seem a conundrum that we're that the automation could be destroying jobs, but somehow not increasing our productivity, the amount that we can make per person. Yeah, well, some of that has to do with the sectors. I mean, almost the vast bulk of the first automation things have been factories. And productivity there has done, done reasonably well. So it's been in the, in the service sectors where it's been slower, and that's where the workforce has shifted to. If we begin to see more um, automation in the service uh, sectors, we will see productivity go up and uh, there'll be job problems. I, I, but then I the wages would go up in some of these service sector jobs. The few that yes. are left would yes. get higher wages. So at least we will have wage growth if, even if we've lost the jobs. No, no, correct. So I, I, I don't think if, if we have a reasonably well-organized economy that we're going to see mass unemployment, these these things, uh, 80 million, 100 million jobs disappearing, and depending on which country they're, or which area of the world they're talking about. I mean, the, the, what should happen is the workers will find some other jobs, and those that, that will put downward pressure in those labor markets. And I, so I think the actual, our concern should be much more, what is automation going to do to the structure of wages? And that gets back to your earlier thing. Is it going to 
harm the wages of the accountants and the managers, or is it going to harm the wages of the, the, the clerks and the, uh, you know, your restaurant that has no uh, waiters or waitresses, but just buttons you, I've been in one in China where you just push buttons. I assume there are a lot, must be more in Japan. And uh, okay, then there's, you feel safer, um, you, you, et cetera. And, um, and it's more, maybe it's more efficient as well. And if, if that's going to be the way of the world, then where are the people who would have held those jobs going to go? We, we just have, we have to worry about them. I think uh, um, I would not I would not trust natural forces, aging <laughs> or automation to take care of the the poor and less skilled people. I think that's something we as societies have to deal with. So. One point you made over the years, which I think is probably much more accepted now than when you were first teaching me about it in the mid-90s, is the power of institutional change and, and the institutions' rules, social mores, and how they have affected uh, what happens to workers in the labor market, what happens to wages. You know, that it's not just, un these aren't unstoppable forces that we can do nothing to control. We have a new administration in the U.S., Yes. Given what you know, you know what could the Biden administration do to improve the outcomes for labor in the sh next few years? I'll, I'll, I'll take three things. Uh, one, Biden is uh, incredibly committed to uh, trade union reforms. So he has, uh, I've never seen a president speak so uh, strongly. And sometimes it seems like a voice from the past. <laughs> He goes back. He is and sometimes a voice from the past. That is he, he, was, he was around in the past too. We know that. <laughs> that is correct. So, so he said, "GFDR said that America <laughs> encourage unions, and that's what I'm going to do." Um, and, uh, and and so he has a. There is a pretty well set out plan. I don't know if they can get it through the Congress. That would indeed strengthen that, but they're certainly going to try. The second area that I think they uh, they will move is in the occupational uh, health and safety area, the OSHA, which should have stepped forward in the pandemic as a major force, making sure workers are protected. In the U.S., the current debate or is where the Republicans want to give employers who bring workers back to unsafe workplaces um, protection against legal suits for you brought me back to an unsafe workplace. And that, that's, that, that's insane in some, some level. Um, and it'll just cause more disaster for everybody. And so I think there'll be a big push on the OSHA and we should be doing obviously more R&D on how can we protect workers in workplaces. Um, that would be a, a, a more natural thing uh, to do. The, the third area that, 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 they, that they will push is something with training people for the new technologies. And so there's a, there's a, a big move inside the parts of the US government that they need really major uh, um, changes in, in training. Um, and I think the administration will love, will love this when it when they see what is being planned. So so there'll, there'll be the, the, those uh, those fronts, but there have to be major 
tax changes as well, um, and how the Biden administration will, will be able to reduce the uh, tax cuts given to the billionaires and their friends and do something more for, for ordinary citizens, we'll see. Richard Freeman, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Now, what value would you put on the ability to lead a normal life? Well, you might say it's priceless, but Bloomberg economists say it's $3 trillion. That's the net benefit to the global economy of countries with vaccination programmes for COVID-19 being able to get back to normal in 2021. Now, that analysis was carried out by Chief EMEA Economist Jamie Rush, our Chief Asia Economist Chang Shu, and Senior Global Economist Bjorn Van Roy. And Jamie Rush is with me now. Uh, Jamie, briefly, uh, how did you come up with this number, uh, just over $3 trillion? So we thought of it as a bounding exercise. We asked ourselves, you know, what's the best that might be possible for these economies if everything just happens to go just right? Uh, and so the way we approached it is we, we divided the world into three groups of countries. We thought that there, there are some that have got a chance, perhaps, of achieving herd immunity, some that would only be able to vaccinate the vulnerable populations, uh, and some who probably even struggle to do that. So it's that first group of countries that has the best chance of getting back to normal. There'll still be cases in those countries, but widespread transmission is pretty unlikely. That means very low fatalities very low personal and societal risk. So it's these countries which have a good chance of getting back to normal. Um, so what we did to, to work out if the countries in this group is we just compared the number of doses that are on order with the, um, the size of the population. Um, and we found that about 16 major economies are, uh, are able to do that and they're accounting for about half of world GDP and a third of the population. So we're thinking, you know, what's the best that's possible for them? Or maybe they can get back to their pre-crisis trend, just maybe. So we estimate that in 4Q, and taking into account the impact of, of fresh lockdowns... That so those, the, last three, the last three months of this year. That's right, yeah. So the yeah. last three months, we were looking at those. Uh, and we, we think that on average, those 16 economies are about 6% below their pre-crisis trend level of output. So if you're able to vaccinate a very substantial proportion of the population in those countries, then maybe if everything goes right, you could get back to that trend level. So 6% increase in GDP, which is about 3.2% of world GDP. In that second group, uh, the, with countries that are just able to vaccinate the vulnerable populations, we think there are about 11 major economies, and these are mostly emerging market economies, uh, and they don't make up a huge amount of world GDP. But we think that vaccinating the vulnerable could have a very big impact on the economy because if you think of it, it will very significantly reduce fatalities. So uh, intensive care beds won't be overburdened. Uh, the, the risk of death for most people will be very low. And so uh, you should still see a very meaningful boost in GDP. But because these economies that are in this group are a bit smaller, um, you only add an extra half a percent to world GDP. And, and so it's, it's those two groups that account for the $3 trillion boost. I mean, I understand these are just kind of broad magnitudes. We're not we're not saying that these exact numbers. But uh, is there are you making an allowance here for the impact on of, of lockdowns? I mean, is the assumption that you're saying that there will be no further lockdowns, whereas there might have been lockdowns? What's that? What's the assumption there? We've, as the base case, we've, we've, we've just assumed that the lockdowns that are in place now uh, stay in place and, until um, until the spring. 
Um, and then the vaccine gradually allows these to unwind. But it, it means that the, the countries that will get the biggest boost in the vaccine will obviously be the ones that have got the tightest lockdown conditions or the lowest levels of GDP. So like the UK falls into that category, Spain as well, where there's really a lot of scope for improvement if they can, uh, they can, they can move past the, the crisis phase of the pandemic. And well, you say uh, the UK, uh, of course, and this is to throw something else in the mix, but of course, the UK in those three months is also going to be going through the sort of the final stage of Brexit is actually not going to, going out of the sort of transition period uh, of Brexit, where we were still following all the European rules. Um, you spend you spent quite a lot of time thinking about what's going to happen to the UK next year. Uh, do you think we're going to be able to see the effect of Brexit in the numbers or is it just going to be crowded out by this big boost from vaccinations and the bounce back of the economy generally as you come out of the pandemic? Well, I think if there is an impact from Brexit, it's likely to happen just before there's a boost from the pandemic. So you probably would see it in the numbers because it would happen in the first quarter of this year. Um, and uh, it's, I don't think it's that likely that there'll be a huge proportion of the population vaccinated by the end of then. Um, I mean, I guess the, the interesting thing about Brexit is that some of the policies that are in place to deal with COVID are also going to work pretty well for the, the Brexit shock because both COVID and Brexit disruption would be a pretty similar uh, supply-side disruption to the economy, something that's hopefully temporary that would eventually go away. And so it calls for the same sort of policy um, settings. So in the UK, we have a large furlough scheme to protect workers, protect jobs. That would work if there was disruption for Brexit or if there's continued disruption for COVID. So in some ways, uh, it's it's helpful that those, those policies are already in place. <laughs> um, when you think about what your sort of base case is for next year, how much is, how much does the pace of vaccination affect where the global economy ends up at the end of next year relative to where it might have been? No, I think I think the realistic base case is that a portion of the population is vaccinated in advanced economies. And because it starts with the vulnerable groups, that that reduces fatalities quite substantially and allows people to go start living their lives a bit more normally. I mean, the big unknown is how the people that aren't in the vulnerable groups will behave once the, the vulnerable people are vaccinated. That's the that could be like the huge upside surprise to activity next year, or it could just be a massive damp squib and everyone just stays and stays because they're still scared. It's perfectly possible it goes either way. So I think that it's it's um it's not a question even of, it's not a question of the the medicine. It's not even a question of of kind of the standard economics. It's a what are what are people's behavioural response going to be to this? And, and to be honest, we just don't know. I have to say, anecdotally, my sense is that people are dying to go on lots of holidays to the extent that they can and go yeah. and restaurants and other things. Now, how long that will last? Um, I think that's right, knows? isn't it? Because I mean, if, you think back to, <laughs> if you think back to the summer, I mean, people were clamouring to get out, go to restaurants, fly, go home. And it's one of the reasons why the economy picked up so fast over that period is that people were willing to, to do things, even though that risk still existed. So um, I, I'm fairly optimistic that something, some, there'll be a fairly major boost as the vaccines roll out. Jamie Rush, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on all things economic. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get a lot of news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics during the week by following at Economics on Twitter. 
This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Olivia Rockman, Richard Freeman, Chang Shu, Bjorn Van Roy, and Jamie Rush. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Lee.